Okay. All right, so uh, turn into your Bibles to 1 Samuel 25. I, uh, so welcome to the confirmation room. <laughs> confirmation room is uh, a fun place. We typically have assigned seating, so these tables are not like stuck together, but this last Sunday was the first Sunday without assigned seating in a long time, and so inevitably what happens is like all the girls sit together and all the boys sit together. <laughs> So this last week, I just, I mean, we'll see which one is the girl's side and the boy's side. I'm not sure. <laughs> but this is what will eventually happen. And they all try to sit at one table. Yeah, so you have like 12 girls at like a four-person table. And I say, well, let's just move a table next to each other. I never thought of that. Okay. All right, great. Uh, did everyone, oh, yeah, the Ruben painting today. Did, did I make enough of those? I need one. Yeah. <laughs> the Rubens painting is uh, of chapter 25, for Samuel 25. It is, uh, well, here, let's backtrack a little bit. So we're going to try to cover three chapters today. 25, 26, 27. Um, so we're not going to necessarily read all those chapters. We're going to pick out certain bits and pieces of it so that we can kind of um, pull along. All right, great. So uh, this painting is not historically accurate. Okay, but that's okay. All right, uh, chapter 25 begins with the death of Samuel. Now, why in the world would that make sense from his own mission and kind of the, the, the thrust of the story thus far? This, this is a logical place where the death of Samuel. So not only, now because um, did it precisely happen in between the two scenarios that um, David spares Saul's life? It probably did. But also, too, in terms of Understanding how First Samuel is the underlying main character of First Samuel is God, Yahweh, the Lord. By the way, in chapel this morning, uh, I forgot to tell you before I read. There's all these lords being spoken. I don't know if you guys noticed that. My Lord, your Lord, the Lord, all this. Well, listening to it, it's very complicated because there's two different words being used, even though they're both translated as Lord. And um, so, when I talk about Yahweh, that means the Lord, the Lord Almighty. And it, I, I, can't, I can't remember, if, I'm assuming I said this before a while ago. But if you happen to uh, turn to verse um, 26, I think that's the first time that happens in that little speech. So when Abigail comes to David, we'll explain if you have no idea who Abigail is or David. If you have no idea who David is, just play along. But if you, uh, but even if you didn't read chapter 25 yet, Abigail, we'll, we'll talk about her in a second. But if you look at verse 26, now then, my Lord, notice it's not capitalized. All right. Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives, 
and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, yada, 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 yada. So my Lord, with lowercase, is a, uh, a, a word of like, you know, she's a servant of him. But as the Lord, and you take a look at the spelling there, they're all caps, but the last three letters are a lower font size. Is that what it's called? You know, you see the difference there? All right. So the one that's all capital, that's Yahweh. That's, that's the Lord Almighty. That's God. And then the other one is just David. But so the Lord is the main character in these stories. He's the mover. He's the shaker. And as he's bringing out this story, Samuel's death comes at a very particular point, and it serves, it serves to that, that, that point is that it's God that's in control. So Samuel has been used by God for a specific purpose. What has Samuel been used for? In relation to David's place in the story. Yeah, he brought he he heralded him, right? And what what did Samuel say of David? He's going to be king, but of course, who stands in the way? Saul. But at the end of chapter twenty-four, what happens? Saul says something to David. You're right. So, uh, verse twenty in, in chapter twenty-four. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king. This is Saul talking. And now, behold, I know that you shall surely be king and that the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Okay, bam. Has Saul's mission been accomplished? I mean, Samuel's. Yes. So now that Samuel's life's, I mean, his purpose has been fulfilled, what, what does he need to live anymore from a very kind of a pragmatic point of view? No, not really. So... It demonstrates how God is, is the mover and shaker of this and how Samuel is part of God's story because, I don't know if you remember, but Samuel, he's a major character in the beginning of 1 Samuel, but he's kind of dropping out of the story over the last several chapters. He hasn't had a main, a main point or a main uh, emphasis. But now he's done because his mission's been fulfilled. Um. So that's why he's in there. Boom. So remind us, oh, hey, wait, God is in control, and what was said of David is actually going to happen. Now, to further that point, we get David and Abigail. All right, so uh, David and Abigail, very, very powerful and interesting story because um, they get married at the end. But I'm not sure if it's like a great love story. Okay, so before we get to it, uh, Abigail's already married to another man, Nabal, Nabal, however you want to put the emphasis on. Uh, Nabal means something. Do you guys have a footnote in there that tells you what it means? It means fool. Now, I'm not quite sure if his parents decided, you know, when they went on the Internet to check meanings of names... (laughs) I am not sure they said, this is a great name. So um, there's, a bunch, there's a bunch of theories, just in case you were wondering, because I, I think it's in a footnote in my Pew Edition Bible. Yeah. Nabal means fool. 
You're like, what in the, who, who, what parent in their right mind is going to name their child fool? So uh, there are a, a couple, there, there are possibilities that uh, in the Hebrew language, it could, it, if you just move a little bit of uh, the verb pointing, you can translate it a little differently. The only problem is, is that all the, all the manuscripts that we have actually says fool. So. Well, again, once again, presuming his parents love him, they want to give him, you know, I mean, how many parents do you know named their child, what, Judas or Adolf? <laughs> Nobody, because they love them. So it would be the same instance here where a parent's not going to go say, hey, my child is, in, is a fool. So really, it's probably being told in this way. So probably there was a, a few other meanings uh, where if you just, so, okay, backtrack. Hebrew has no vowels. Only has consonants, and context will often, or usage will will dictate what the meaning is. Uh, vowels came in later uh, in the Hebrew language, and they're like little points or dashes. Um, so, the root consonants of Nabal could mean a, a, a variety of kind of normal things. Do they have another name in Hebrew that it could mean? Uh, well, it could it could mean like. Um, uh, uh, like sturdiness, or, or uh, but in terms of like historical manuscripts, like if we look in, like it just says, which of course makes sense based on the story because Abigail, when she talks to David, says, as his name is, so he is. I know. I just, I just, I just, you know, bring that up because that's the first thing I thought. I'm like, what parent in their good, their right mind is going to name their child fool? In Africa, they sometimes name their kids a sort of like garbage because they've lost so many kids. They think they've had a bad name. Right. Now, um, yeah. Now, again, that would be another another theory, but it's of course just speculation. So we're just going to go with Nabal. His name's Fool, and he's a fool. Now, the way the story's told, though, it also makes sense because before we find out his name, we find out something about him. And that, that's, we'll just read the first couple of verses of this introduction starting halfway, uh, halfway through verse, well, with verse 2. There was a man in Maon whose business was in Carmel. Uh, that's not Mount Carmel. It's a different, different location. It's a town. Right. The man was very rich. He had 3,000 sheep and 1,000 goats. He was shearing his sheep in Carmel. Okay, so before we know his name, what do we know about him? He's rich. And as the story comes along, we, that's his first priority. Which, of course, who are the fools in the Old Testament and also in the New Testament? Rich, rich people. The fool, right, builds more barns, tears down his old ones, yada, yada, yada. Okay. Yada, yada, yada is not in the Bible. <laughs> okay, great. So, so um, Nabal is a, is a, a Calebite, um, which probably means that he's probably faithful to Saul. Because um, I think that's in chapter 16. Saul helps them. I should have remembered that. But um, 
anyways, so what happened is, is that David hears that the sheep are being sheared. Now, does anyone know when the sheep are sheared? What time of the year? Yeah, because you can go to Klein Creek. I think it's already happened, though. Did they? Okay, great. So if you haven't been to Klein Creek in the spring, you should go. It's really fun to see the sheep sheared. Okay. Um, yeah, the sheep are sheared in the spring, so it's it's a, it's a time of abundance. So that that's important because we always think of the fall, like you know late summer, fall being har- that's harvest time for the fields, but this time is a very special time also. So so David is out there and he is um, he helps out. He protects the sheep, the shepherds. Now that's that's actually the sheep and the shepherds need protection. Nabal is probably, even though he owns all these uh, sheep and goats, he probably doesn't shepherd them. He has people to do that kind of thing. And so these are hired hands. Now, hopefully that should echo something. Yeah, what, what do you mean? Well, this yeah, there's a couple. Of, there's a couple in the New Testament where I mean, this all makes sort of sense now. Hired hands, but it wasn't sheep. Well, so the hired hand. So I am the good shepherd, right? The good. Sh- oh. I, I was thinking of, of the vineyard. Yeah. Oh, well, that's the same difference, though. Does the hired hands care about anything? No, they they all want it for themselves. So he, when David comes. And like helps out. I put in quotes here because there's a couple reasons why it might be in quotes or not. There, there's maybe there's a couple motivations of what's going on here. Is David is trying to do a good work on, on two levels. One is if David shows up, the hired hands cannot cannot not do their job. Yes, they can't goof off because now they have a third party who's going to tell on them. Also, the hired hands cannot, uh, well, sell the sheep. Um, I, didn't, I didn't print out a map. I should have. But most, I mean, most likely, his, uh, where, he, where Nabal lives and where the sheep are grazing are probably not, I mean, are getting sheared or not in the same spot. So there's a good chance that um, this, was, this happened, where the hired hands would sell the sheep to somebody else make money, and then take off. Now, of course, David's there. He can't. They can't do that. All right, great. So he's coming there. Now, there's two reasons why someone of David's stature... I'm sorry. There's two ways of viewing David's stature through the work he did. So, well, let's keep reading. I mean, let's keep looking. Um... So David protects his uh, Nabal's sheep and workers, young men. And then he says, hey, go up to Nabal and tell him, hey, listen, peace be to you. Um, verse, uh, end of verse 8. Please give whatever you have at hand to your servants and to your son David. So there's two ways of looking at this. One is he's asking for, he's extorting. He's acting like a mob boss. I gave you protection. Now you got time to pay up, okay? And there's a lot of people who think that way, and there's a couple of reasons why. Uh, because of his vengeance, when things don't get paid up, David decides to 
go up to, to Nabal's place and eradicate him. And so some people think that he enters into that scenario with violence on the mind already, or like the possibility of violence. I'm not sure if that's quite true because of when, you know, I take his words at it, like when he says peace, peace, I think he says peace three times. Mm -hmm. Uh, There's no reason to not believe him. Which goes into the second scenario, why David would be doing what he's doing, and that is, in this society, there is a uh, um, a honor and shame, and the idea of gift-giving, where, but gift-giving only happens between equals, or of a, of a, like a servant to a, a ruler. But the servant to the ruler is doing it in a way that would try to, to, you know, to kind of even out the relationship. So the servant would give a king something super expensive, and the king could just give just a, a thank you or acknowledgement of the gift. And that would kind of even out the relation or even it out a little bit more, not quite exactly to, to, to equal. The gift giving often was given, gifts were given to create equilibrium between people. All right, so, um, so David is either doing it because he is a servant, acting like a servant to Nabal, which he says, um, but he actually doesn't call Nabal like Lord or Master. What relationship does David create between Nabal and him? It's in at the end of verse eight. We just read. Father, son. All right. So, so this is a, it's not a, theoretically it's not an, a, an economic exchange. This is this is more of a familial type of exchange. All right. I, I, I'm leaning toward more towards that where David is acting like. Um, Someone who's part of the family, and this is what this is what family members do. But did Nabal really know that he was doing this? Well, that goes into the idea of gift. David is doing this as a is a, a, a gracious thing. Also, too, though, Nabal's response to this now. Yeah, so this goes to the next thing. So, you know, the servants go to Nabal and say, "Hey, can you do this?" And then, verse ten, Nabal answers David's servants. Who is David? Who is the son of Jesse? There are many servants these days who are breaking away from their masters. Shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed for my shears and give it to men who've come from I don't know where? So what is Nabal saying about David? Well, yeah. <laughs> David has no authority. He has no he has no family. I mean he, he I mean he has no no uh no family re, uh, relationship to Nabal. So he, he, Nabal has no obligation to him. Also, too, um, uh, there are many servants breaking away from their masters. What could be said of David? Well, if he's, if he's able to solve, I mean, if Nabal right. so, Saul. That's exactly right. So if Nabal knows Saul, he probably has heard that David has broken away from his master. So David's up to no good. And then last but not least, but this is where uh, Nabal is pretty foolish because what he says to his, um, in verse 11, shall I take my bread and my water and my meat that I've killed from my shears and give it to men who've 
come from I don't know where. Um, but David perhaps protected his shears from either, you know, taking advantage of Nabal or even, you know, protecting from the elements, from, from uh, raiders and, uh, you know, whatever, lions and bears and tigers and wolves and coyotes. I don't know, whatever animals were around there. Yeah, wolves probably. Okay, great. So, so Nabal is, is, I mean, this is a basically a statement that, David, you mean nothing and you cannot force me into this situation. So Nabal thinks David's extorting him. So this is kind of where, depends on which perspective you're looking at. But regardless of that, David gets upset. He's like, go up there, we're going to go up there and, and take care of business. Um, because he's greatly offended. So David's response is not not faithful or proper to the Lord's anointed. Now, of course, a servant hears about this and intercedes and goes right to Nabal's wife, Abigail, and says, hey, these guys were good to us. They, were not, they weren't threatening to us. Basically, there's no sign of extortion, violence. So Nabal doesn't know what he's talking about. Now, Abigail reads the signs, and through her, her confession of David, knows something about David that we don't know that she knows yet. And that is, she knows that Samuel has anointed David king of Israel. So, Abigail interceding for Nabal and the whole household of Nabal is a confession that Abigail believes the word of the prophet. All right, so, she, okay, so that comes to the thinking now. There we go. So N Abigail, she grabs a bunch of stuff, which, of course, is the very things that David said is asking for. Now, the thing is, so, we don't know exactly, uh, well, we finally figure out in, uh, how many men are with David. Well, 600 total, 400 go with him, 200 stay with the baggage. Um, yeah, I mean, that's a, lot of money. that's a lot of people. So they're going to need a lot of food. And the thing is, though, based on Nabal's wealth, he, he can afford it. I mean, it's not like, yeah. All right. Um, okay, so now think politically. Why would it be a benefit David to get Nabal on his side? Because he's rich. I mean, come on, this is basic like politics 101. This is like normal pol political fundraising here. <laughs> Get the rich people on your side, and you can do a lot. I'm not being. I'm. I'm not sarcastic. <laughs> yeah. Is that the only reason that he went out in the wilderness? Uh, no. Well, most likely he went out in the wilderness because of Saul's uh, um, chasing him. So. I mean, there's a good, there's a, you know, was he making a good, a, yeah, just, you know, hey, he's making lemons out of, uh, oh, I'm sorry, lemon, lemonade. lemonade out of lemons, there we go. <laughs> All right, so, so let's take a look, now, as, as you look at this painting, even if you don't know exactly what the story's going on, um, of course, the center of the whole painting is 
It's David and Abigail, but even more precisely, what, uh, just look at the hands. David's hands. What is David's hands doing? It almost looks like he's what? Touching. Yeah, he's holding up her arm. But of course, where is her arm pointing? Well, her one arm pointing to, see, this is where it's great painter. You got to look at it closely, meditate upon it, just like God's word. There's more to it than you think. To her heart. What kind of man is David? Man out of God's own heart. And of course, we know what happens with Abigail and David, right? They become husband and wife. David upholding her arm to her heart is a sign. Well, we, we, we will know. If we actually get back to the Bible a little bit here, is that David says to Abigail, you're right, I'm wrong. I'm, I'm following your heart. Because Abigail's heart's in line with God's. So they're of the same character. Also, too, um, I didn't read that part, but maybe I should have. Maybe just turn back real quick. Um, Abigail, right here, um, verse 3, and the name of his wife, Abigail, the woman was discerning and beautiful. The word discerning, wise, um, Solomon was a wise man, but does anyone know what that actual word means here in Pastor Chats? It's a little heart that has ears on it. It's a hearing heart. So Abigail has a hearing heart. All right, anyhow. So I, I think that's a really powerful image right there in the Rubens painting. But it could be David's hands is out, like ready to receive something. I think he's opening their elbow. Yep. So their connection. And she's like, take this. Yeah, right. Very tender, isn't it? Which, of course, you know, I mean, it's kind of soap opera-ish, right? What's going on here? The seeds of love are being planted. Also, it seems like she could be, like, Naval obviously came to David very proudly. Yeah, right. And, and she, in contrast to her husband, she comes very humble, like, basically prostrate herself. Right. And it seems like in the picture, he's bringing her back up. That's exactly right. So, uh, this is the moment where he's, yeah, they're becoming now equal. I mean, I I think uh, we talked about friendship before between David and Jonathan and St. Alliard of Revoe. Collateral. They become collateral, or always known as collateral, but that that has different connotations to us. They're, They're of the same stature. So, anyways, I think it's a very lovely picture. A lot of rich colors. Anything else? I mean, there's a lot of other, I mean, we could talk about this for a while, but. All right, well, uh, turn to verse 23. All right, so Abigail comes and says, um, 
hey, we're going to take all this stuff to David, but don't tell Nabal. Don't tell anybody. So, so uh, verse 23, when Abigail saw David, she hurried and got down from the donkey and fell before David on her face and bowed to the ground. She fell at his feet and said, on me alone, my Lord, be the guilt. So what is she doing? Yeah, she's taking the blame. She's interceding. What does that sound like? Well, it, sounds, it sounds like Jesus, but it sounds like any good mother. My child. No, she, uh, she's obviously taking the one of responsibility. Yeah, I mean, that, that's the more basic premise then. Um, but she is, yeah, she is interceding. Uh, let me take the guilt. Please let your servant speak in your eyes. So when she takes the guilt, she's, she's trying again then to make restoration. She's asking for forgiveness on the ba- behalf of her husband. All right, this is where the Lord... There's all different kinds of lords being spoken. Let not my lord regard this worthless fellow Nabal, for as his name is, so is he. Nabal is his name, and folly is with him. you got to ask your wonder, like, did she know this before she got married? This had to be an arranged marriage. I arranged marriage, and of course they arranged because he's rich. He's rich. Yeah, I mean, hey. You know, here's the thing. In high school... You know, all the guys with the nice cars, and they always get the girls, man. <laughs> Same back then, too. Of course, none of these ladies, none of you guys are like that. All right. You look on the heart, just like Abigail. Okay. Uh, where are we now? Now then, my Lord, as the Lord lives and as your soul lives, because the Lord has restrained you from blood guilt and from saving with your own hand, now then let your enemies and those who seek to do evil to my Lord be as Nabal. Okay, so what did she say? If you go into this killing him, you're going to be like, you're going to be like a Nabal. But also she says, whose job is it to take, to, to take vengeance? or to take, It's God's. Okay? Now, of course... David has already said this regarding Saul. So just chapter 24. Well, for, he, David's just mad. He's, I think he's just, he's just mad person. He's just mad. His emotions are just raging in, inside him because he probably took a big risk and really felt, hey, I did something good. I deserve something good in return. It's, it's pretty tough. Uh, Aaron first, and then Nancy. Well, it's, it's really striking that he uses the exact same language that Saul did. So in verse 21, he says, Surely in vain have I guarded yep. that all this fellow has in the wilderness, so that nothing exists at all is lost. And he has returned the evil for good. And then you just go back to, like you said, you go back to 24, it's the same. It's exactly the same. Uh, that he did. Right. So Abigail, who knows? He <coughs> with evil, yep. That's exactly right. So uh, whether Abigail knows that or not, obviously, you know, the person writing this, Nathan, people think Nathan wrote it. Sounds great. Nathan, uh, the prophet Nathan from Second Samuel, uh, writing this is making that point. Listen, you can't, you can't have it both ways and be okay. You have, you have to have God primary and when things don't go your way, it doesn't mean that, you know, you get to do whatever you want. So it's really bringing out the contrast. 
And then it really makes David's words all the more powerful right after this. Nancy. I was just going to say, David had 600 men to feed. Back then he didn't raid any of those sheep or whatever. It was pretty... Um, well, yeah, and, and then in chapter 27, <laughs> David does precisely what Nancy says. He goes around raiding people. Um, very, very slyly with the Philistines. He says he's attacking villages of Judah, but he's actually attacking old enemies of Judah. We'll uh, talk about the moral complexities in a second. Um, all right, great. So um, Abigail basically says, listen, man, God's in control here. You're, it's not you. Don't repay evil with evil. And then, so in verse 32, David says to Abigail, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Israel, who sent you this day to meet me. Blessed be your discretion, and blessed be you. Three blessings. Three, I mean, that's important. Three is important. Completeness. So he basically confesses that she's completely right and he's completely wrong. And this is where the, the painting is really helpful because he basically puts himself in her service. So he, um, the rising up of Abigail in the picture is, is very important. He's saying, you are as me. Okay. And, of course, we'll see that when they get married. Uh, for surely as the Lord, verse 34. Uh, oh, I'm sorry. Did we finish that? Blessed be your discretion. Oh, who have kept, the, kept me this day from blood guilt and from avenging myself with my own hand. For as surely as the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, and who has restrained me from hurting you, Unless you had hurried and come to meet me truly by morning, there had not been left in a ball so much as one male. Um, yeah. That's a, that's a pretty, uh, pretty great little speech right there by David. All right, so, so the, okay, so again, uh, Abigail goes back to Nabal. And behold, he was holding a feast in his house, like the feast of the king. And Nabal's heart was merry with him, within him, for he was very drunk. Of course, what is he acting like? He's acting like a fool. I mean, it's, it's almost to the point of caricature. But she waits until he sobers up, because he does, she doesn't want him to miss this. In the morning when the wine had gone out on the ball, his wife told him these things, and his heart died within him. Now, the big question is, why? Why do you think? Well, I, I, I mean, I, I think I have one theory. It's because he lost a bunch of stuff. You gave what? She betrayed him. I, th I think betrayal, of course, is a very big part of it, but I think based on Nabal's behavior, the loss of the stuff was the worst part of the whole thing. But then again, he could have seen his wife as property, which is, that's very common back then. Which again, he, he's, a, he's kind of, he's a fool. Yeah. Would he not know, or his name, the king, ooh, Nabal, would he not would scheme that far ahead, thinking if he was faithful to Saul, he was thinking, if I do this or don't do this for Saul's enemy, 
I will find great favor and abundance from the king. Oh, yeah, right. And now this wife of mine <laughs> has undermined all these things. Yeah. Yeah, the, the other thing, too, though, is that he. Oh, yeah. Well, that's a good question. But he was acting like a king. Is he a king? No. Yeah, well, he, I mean, he's probably a chieftain, this idea of like, because he's probably, the, you know, his family, he kind of runs his family like that. But anyways, the whole point is that he's just, he's just not really a, he's on the wrong side. Okay. So, of course, he dies 10 days later. And Abigail and David then get married. Um, yeah, just you know, who knows? She was she was a willing participant. Let's put it that way. Uh, just a word of note: at the very end of chapter twenty-five. Uh, by the end of chapter twenty-five, how many wives does David have? Three. Abigail, Ahinoam of Jezreel, of Jezreel, and then Michal, but in verse 44, Saul had given Michal, his daughter, David's wife, to Palti, son of Laish, Laish, or Lahish. But we'll find out later, David gets Michal back. But people are just kind of wondering what in the world's going on there. Just, you have... Um, to look forward to that. I can't remember when he gets her back, though. Verse 30, I mean, chapter 30 or 31. Anyways, okay. So verse 26, we're just going to kind of cruise past this real quick. Very similar to the verse 20, uh, chapter 24. Sorry, I'm saying verses and chapters all mixed up. Chapter 26 and chapter 24 are very similar insofar as David has an opportunity to uh, take out Saul, but he doesn't. But it's this more higher emphasis. This is the last time that Saul and David are, are together. But um, Saul takes his spear and his water jug. His spear is probably the sign of him as king, right? Because he always has a spear. He's throwing it at Jonathan, throwing it at David. He's got it around. So it's probably his, like, royal emblem. And then the water jug... Why in the world would, why would you take a water jug? That's right. Yeah, yeah, he's out in the middle of the desert. So not only has he taken his title, yeah, he, he's, he's got his source of life. Um, so, so again, this emphasize that Saul now is completely in the hands of David. Um course he acknowledges his sin i mean this is, is saul becomes this really pitiful weak person at the end of chapter 26 i mean it's like you're kind of like ugh. by the way though david david of course then goes back to the way he normally is right he doesn't yeah he he listens to abigail abigail helps him act appropriately to nabal and then of course then he continues to live that way with saul um yeah I just, it gets, it's just really sad, and then when you get to chapter 28, next week we'll do to chapter 28, you're, you're at the point now where you're like, ugh, Saul, come on, man. Because he, he, he hangs out with a witch and a ghost. You're just like, ugh. Okay. 
there's a bunch of other interesting things in this, but we're let's we'll. It's not the last time we'll read First Samuel. But any questions? Yeah. Paul makes another confession at the end of this chapter. Right. You know, it's like I, I see the handwriting on the wall. Come on back to my fold, and we'll all get along. Right, and then, um, well, and then verse 27, verse 21, uh, chapter 27, verse 1, right? Saul's like, hey, man, you're right, you'll be king. And what does David say to himself? Then David said in his heart, now I shall perish one day by the hand of Saul. So I don't think David believes him. Okay? Um, And he probably has a good right to not believe him based on Saul's character. And then, of course, it's confirmed in chapter 28 after this, after chapter 27. Yeah, David should not have trusted Saul at all. All right, so where does David go? He goes to the land of the Philistines, his enemy, Saul's enemy. Now, um, this is kind of an interesting story. I mean, it's a very smart idea on David's part because he seeks protection from the, the enemy of Saul. Saul's not going to go into Philistine territory. Okay. So, um, he goes to uh, Achish. Let's, uh, let's, let's actually read verse 5 through 5, and five 6, 7. Then David said to Achish, If I have found favor in your eyes, let a place be given me in one of the country towns that I may dwell there. For why should your servant dwell in the royal city with you? So that day Achish gave him Ziklag. Therefore Ziklag has belonged to the kings of Judah to this day. And the number of the days that David lived in the country of the Philistines was a year and four months. Okay. What's David doing here? Being pragmatic. Yeah, he's okay. Being pragmatic. Yes, he's got protection. But even even so, it's not even related to Saul. What? Okay, what is David's job to do? To become king of Israel, right? The whole land of Israel. So Israel and Judah, the uh, the northern and southern kingdoms. Okay. In order to do that, who will he have to defeat? The Philistines. I mean, David's already infiltrating the Philistines in order to defeat them later. So it's not just to get away from Saul. I mean, David's acting like he should. He's, to, he's, uh, he's battling the Philistines. But he's, he's doing it in a very, I mean, yeah, I mean, cloak and dagger, right? Holy smokes. So, because um, why, why would it be appropriate for David to live with Achish? From Akisha's perspective, yeah. Why? Why? I'm sorry. Why would it be inappropriate? Why? Why? Okay, well, let's backtrack, back to the earlier. Um, let, let's let's say let's let's ask the actually the other question. Why would it be appropriate for David to be in the same city as Akish? What would that say? That he's also a king. Why would why well wow, that's okay. Why do you say that, Jen? Well, it would mean that Akish would have to recognize him as the anointed king of um, Israel. Okay. 
So mm -hmm. therefore, they should be on an equal base, but that's not what David asks for. Okay, that, that could be, surely. That he might turn against his own people and fight with him. Okay. If he's, if he's in his, his territory. Yeah, right, side, okay. He would maybe fight, fight what, yeah, what happened to the Ark of the Covenant when the Philistines conquered and took it? Oh, it caused all kinds of problems. But why? Yeah, I know. But what did they do with it? They well, what did they initially do? They put it in their temple. Put it in the temple. Why? Because they were like, oh, we just like we captured this. That's right. To show the trophy of our God. That's right. So if David moves in with a quiche, what does that say about a quiche? He's more powerful than David. But David, of course, is smart and knows he doesn't want that because he's going to have to go back to Israel one of these days and say, hey, I'm your king. So what David says to Achish is like, I don't want to cloud your space. Just go ahead and give me a, a place to be and I will help you, take care of you. I mean, David is very smart in this respect because he's thinking about the future and how if he gets associated with the Philistines, it's going to undermine his leadership. So now he gets to Ziklag. He's got his place. Now, that would not be uncommon um, because uh, mercenaries – oh, so he's acting like a paid mercenary now, by the way. forgot to say that. It would be, uh, it would, it's very common for mercenaries to be paid with land and home. I always think about Gladiator. I mean, you ever see that movie way back when Russell Crowe? Yeah. And he longs to what? His yeah, go back to his family, his land, because he was given that for being, his, uh, being the, the, the powerful soldier he was. I'm sure there's other examples, but that just popped in my head. Russell Crowe often pops in my head, so... <laughs> Javier. Yes. Okay. It's another Russell Crowe. Yeah. All right, so verse 8 now in chapter 27. Now David and his men went up and made raids against the Gersherites, the Gerzites, and the Amalekites. For these were the inhabitants of the land from of old, as far as Shur to the land of Egypt. David would strike the land and would have neither man nor woman alive, but take away the sheep, the oxen, the donkeys, the camels, and the garments, and come back to Achish. And when Achish asked, where have you made a raid today? David would say, against the Negev of Judah, or against the Negev of the Jerimelites. You actually separate the two E's, and I don't know how to pronounce that, but or against the Negev of the Kenites. David would leave neither man nor woman alive to bring news to Gath, thinking lest they should tell about us and say, so David has done. Such was his custom all the while he lived in the country of the Philistines. And Achish trusted David thinking, he has made himself an utter stench to his people Israel, therefore he shall always be my servant. Okay, now uh, this could be in a map, but I don't. I, I should have. This is another important thing. So, okay, the Negev of Judah, the Negev of uh, Jerimelites and Kenites. 
These are the inhabitants of old. So who are the inhabitants of old? Are they for Israel or against Israel? They're against, especially the Amalekites. That should be like a, oh wait. But David eradicates them. So I know it's really hard to hear. But then he goes to Achish and says, he describes that land in terms of property of Israel or Judah. So Akish is hearing, oh, hey, he's attacking his own family. But he's not leaving any, David's not leaving anybody, so they can't go actually say, eh, actually, he's killed, uh, he's killed uh, the enemies of Israel. He was just lucky they didn't have Twitter. <laughs> That's right, or Facebook to post any instant uh, video. Now, so, so David actually is using the Philistines. Uh, so this goes back then to the point that Akish is actually thinking that I'm in charge, David is a servant of mine, and he's doing what's best for me so I can trust him. So David from the get-go doesn't want to be close to Akish. He needs the distance for his own purposes, based, also based on the story that's going to be told back in Judah and Israel, the kingdom of Israel. Because as, uh, as stories will travel, they'll hear that David is working in enemy territory for their good. Because, um, well, we, we won't get to that until Second Samuel. But when the time comes for David, David to take over, everyone's like, of course we will. We will have David as king because he has eradicated our enemies. He's fulfilled God's will. And of course, the Amalekites, what did Saul not do that he should have? But yeah, eradicate the Amalekites. Now, the one thing about, and this is where it's kind of complex, is that what does David do that Saul did? Yeah, he took the booty. Um, and I, I don't know why that's okay for David to do and not okay for Saul. Yeah, yeah. The simple answer is that was for Saul to do and not for David. So you know the requirement for Saul doesn't necessarily pass on to David, but it, it does. Always for Saul. I thought it was just that God had specifically said in this case that you're not supposed to. You're supposed to do it. Well, right. Yeah, I don't know if he actually says specifically in this case, but that uh, that's basically the simple explanation. I, don't, I, 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 mean, I mean, there's a lot of crazy... Well, like, why is it okay for David to lie? Or is he lying? I don't know. No, uh, you know, because... Um, yeah, you don't, you, you don't have enough time to think about what that means. Because, right, he tells Akish one thing and does another. Could be just being political. Maybe the truth doesn't apply to Keish, I don't know. Does God's purpose outweigh? Yeah, no, I, I, I mean, these are like fair questions, though, I think we should ask ourselves. And uh, that's why I put them at the end of class, because we can't talk about them. <laughs> Nancy, what were we going to say? I'm thinking, I mean, in a way, I'm not sure exactly what the southern border of Judah was. If they control, if theoretically they had been given that land, say, oh yeah, I was just, you know, going out um, harassing people who live in the area of Judah. Right. 
Well, that, that's, I'm sure that's what was, uh, that's going to be said when David comes in to the kingdom of Israel. Is that, hey, I was, I'm working for you. I'm doing what was right, rightly ours. I'm sure that's probably a good explanation. It's still sneaky. Yeah. I, I think if you're the Lord's anointed, we should trust the Lord's anointed. Let's put it that way. Since none of us have been anointed king of Israel, then we can't really, maybe we don't quite understand. Yeah. All right, so chapter next week, chapter 28, is going to be a fun one. Uh, the Witch of Endor. And Samuel's Ghost. And then uh, it's pretty much all downhill from there. Yeah, so I'll, David's got to go get his wife back. And then uh, Saul dies. So, all right. Uh, and last week's our last uh, last Bible study. It doesn't feel like it should be though, because it's like forty degrees out. Yeah, it feels like we need two more weeks. I mean, I feel like did Christmas just happen? Uh, yes, as far as the fall is concerned, most likely we're probably gonna do Second Samuel just because we didn't. Yeah, we, you know, whatever. We didn't get as far as we should have. Um, we got to finish the story of Samuel, of David. Um, yes. But I also want to introduce you guys to a woman I met. Her name's Katharina Regina von Griffenberg. She's a uh, 17th century Lutheran woman who wrote uh, meditations on the Incarnation, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And they are um, wonderful. Uh, not all of them have been translated into English. So we're only going to read the English ones. I'm going to read the German ones. But um, yes, now, the question will be whether we get to her next year. I just She will be the next one on Slate, but... I, I met her about a month or two ago. I, I met her through another woman, Bridget Heal. She's a professor at St. Saint, at Saint Andrews. She wrote a, fa- a great book about Lutheran art and Reformation, and uh, it's the magnificent word. It's a, a great book. Holy smokes! Really, you find out that St. John is actually probably more like. The 16th and 17th century Lutherans, than perhaps we we realize. Anyways, Katharina Regina von Griffenberg makes it into that book. So I read her book, and it's it's. I mean, I just am like, it's really good. So I think it'd be good for everybody to read it, because she's a woman. And you guys are women. <laughs> no, no, I, I have to, I have to jokingly say that is because um, because she's a woman. When she talks about Christ's incarnation, now she didn't have any children. Um, but when she talks about the Annunciation and the pregnancy of Mary, I'm like, I'm blown away. <laughs> Yeah, because she talks as a, a woman. And how uh, 
like things I would have been like, yeah, that's true. I would have never thought of that because I'm a guy. Which then at the same time, I think would be very helpful for, for any woman, but even a woman who carried a child, you'd be like, yeah, well, I'm assuming. I feel like she should be right. But since I never carried a child, I won't know. But um, I feel like she should, she should be right about what she says about Jesus. The presence of Christ in your life. Let's put it that way. Don't get me started, because I could say a lot more. Because well, I'll say one more thing. <laughs> so Good Friday, she, she, she's, she's meditating upon... So she's a Lutheran in Roman Catholic land. It's illegal to be a Lutheran. She cannot go to church. She has to go to either Germany or Hungary in order to go to church. And so she only goes to church like a few times a year. And she tries to actually convert the Austrian emperor to Lutheranism. And so she's very like, go Lutheran. But she's meditating about the, 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 the crucifix on Good Friday, and she, she has this great thing where she meditates upon how, when the descent from the cross, when they take down Jesus' body, she's pretending to be Mary again. Like, how would a mother handle her child's death? Like, holding him close? And I'm, I, I'm like, uh, I'm about to cry right now. And then she's like, I would suck all the thorns out of my precious son's forehead. Thinking about, like, kissing the forehead. Of her. Like, I would have never thought of that as a guy. So, anyways, I had to read that. That might make it into a margin comment. I don't know. But if you're like, so, all right, let's pray. Lord, remember us in your kingdom and teach us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. See you later. Thanks.